young man full of vigor. Gone is the military hero. Gone is the astute political leader. In fact, at the end, David's weak. And sad to say, as we see him in 1 Kings chapter 1, he's rather feeble. As David neared 70 years old, he became ill of what we don't know. The, the text never says. We can only guess. Some have suggested that it was nothing more than the years of stress finally taking its toll on, king, on the king of Israel. And that's possible. He surely had his share of stress, much of it self-induced. But in my view, he probably suffered from some physical disease that took his strength. Whatever the case, whether it is strictly the stress or whether it's a physical disease, David is worn out when he gets to be around 70 years old as his life is coming to a close. This is not presented so much as an excuse for David's lapse in judgment in this chapter, but a contributing factor in it. In verses 1 through 4, we see now David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but could not keep him warm. Just one quick note. David's about 70, so, so please don't take offense at that. Says the Bible's the one that's saying he was old, advanced in age. I'm not saying that. I happen to think 70's very young. 70's the new 30, from what, from what I've heard. But according to the writer of 1 Kings, David was old. Now, King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but could not keep him warm. So a servant said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord, the king, and let her attend the king, and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. David's close, as I said, to 70 at this time, and he is described by the text, as old and well-advanced in age. You know, it's been my experience, some people are old when they're 50. Others are young when they're 70. It all has to do with how healthy you are. And David, apparently at this time, by the time he gets to be 70, he's not as healthy as he once was. And it has zapped his strength. The unspecified illness left David with chronically poor circulation. Or, there's one other possibility, he may have had some sort of fever situation that was ongoing where he had continual chills. But more likely, this appears to be some chronic circulation problem that went along with the disease. Either way, he can't keep warm. What David's ministers suggest is a bit of a shock to a 21st century audience, but it was not unheard of in the ancient world. There are instances mentioned in later writings of this type of procedure. Josephus, for example, calls this a medical procedure, medical prescription. Galen, who wrote in the second century and was both a physician and a philosopher, writes about this, and he confirms that it was an accepted practice in Greek medicine. I only bring this up because some have looked at this passage and assumed that this is just another one of David's failings with women, that it's some sort of sin. But that's really missing the point here. As the text tells us, he didn't have any intimacy with this woman. This is way beyond that. David's sick at this point. Obviously, David had his share of episodes with women that he would like to forget, I'm sure. But 
this isn't one of them. This is also someone else's idea. David is old, he's weak, and he's feeble at this time. This is the people who are ministering to him's idea. The text, I think possibly anticipating the criticism that probably David just back into his sinful pattern, tells us specifically that David didn't have intimacy with this woman. Abishag, I, I, I think that's a beautiful name. I was going to name my daughter Abishag if I had another one. Um, <laughs> but she was beautiful. And if the text says that she was beautiful, not just beautiful, very beautiful, she was. The message of the first paragraph is that David's weakness has encouraged his oldest son, Adonijah, to believe that it's time for him to assume the throne. And then it also introduces this lady, Abishag, who's going to come up later. We shouldn't get so bogged down into this procedure for keeping David warm, this electric blanket, so to speak, for keeping him warm. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in that part of the text that we miss the overall message of what's happening here. What's really happening here is the writer is setting us up for what's about to happen. David's weak at this point. And the reason that this is going to happen with Adonijah is that he is weak. That's the message of the first four verses. Now we get to the meat of the passage in verses 5 through 10. But before we do that, I need to give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on with regard to the sons of David. There were there are four primary sons that we need to mention, and then, of course, Solomon, who comes way later. You'll recall Amnon, who was killed by Absalom. That's David's oldest. So he's out of the picture now. There was a man named Chiliab, who's mentioned in the birth narratives of David's wives, but then never comes up again. Presumably, Chiliab has died as a youth, but he's never mentioned again. There is one place in Scripture where he's also known as Daniel. Now, not the Daniel that will come later, but that was another name that he is once called. But he's not mentioned again. He's out of the picture. Then, of course, you remember Absalom, the, the one that led the revolution, and he, of course, has been killed by his cousin, Joab, much older cousin, but his cousin, Joab. And then tonight we meet the fourth son. Haven't really talked about him at all, but the fourth son of David is Adonijah. He, because the other three are dead, is obviously the oldest surviving son. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, as with most ancient cultures, the oldest son would have been the one that would commonly have assumed the throne. Now, it's not going to be that way in Israel, not with David, because of the Davidic promise and the covenant. But that's who we're talking about tonight. The fourth son, the other three are dead. At least Kiliab is presumed dead. He thinks that he's in line to the throne. In verse 5, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. You, you see how this fits into the flow of the narrative. We've just learned that David is weak and feeble. He can't even keep himself warm. At this point, his oldest surviving son says, now I'm going to be the king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why had he done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. One quick comment about that. David was handsome, and Absalom was handsome, Adonijah was handsome. There was a, a, apparently some pretty good genes that David had running through his family. In verse 7, and he had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. But Zadok the priest... Benaiah, the son of Joadiah, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoleth, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited all his brothers and the king's son and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. 
Verse 10, watch. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. They didn't make the guest list. Now, one thing I want to show you here, you may or may not be able to see it as far in the back, but this is this big dot right here is, is going to be on Gihon, which is right outside the city of Jerusalem. In Rogel, which is right south of Gihon, is not but about a mile, maybe even a half a mile south of Gihon. And both of these places would have almost been within shouting distance of where the Temple Mount would later be. If you've been to Jerusalem and you've stood on the, the, the Temple Mount and you've looked down over the Kidron Valley and then up the Mount of Olives, these things would have, you would have been able to see these two places standing at that, at that point. My point is, these are very close to Jerusalem, maybe a mile, maybe half a mile. To put it in perspective, here's Bethlehem, which is only five miles from Jerusalem. You see the, you see the difference? This is going to come up later in the text, so I want you to see it now, how close these places are. So when Adonijah goes to Enrogel to be declared the king, he's not going very far outside of town at all. Maybe, maybe like here to the corner down where 45 is. We're talking about something that's really close. So when we find out later on that they can hear Solomon's party, the, the, the celebration from Solomon being anointed the king, you'll see it's all very close together. If Adonijah's actions with getting 50 men to run before him sound familiar, does that sound familiar to you? It ought to. That's the same thing his brother Absalom did. Exact same thing. He's declaring himself king. By preparing for himself 50 chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. That's declaring himself king. And David either doesn't see, him, see it coming, or he's too weak physically at this point to do anything about it. It appears as though he may be too weak to do anything about it. Well, what might motivate Adonijah to behave this way? Is it possible that David hasn't told Adonijah that he's not the next in line for the throne. He would have thought he was, culturally. Is it possible David didn't tell Adonijah this? Well, it's, of course, it's always possible. And if that's the case, Adonijah had every right to assume that he was next in line for the throne. That was the ancient custom. But even so, even if Adonijah was the next in line for the throne, he jumps the gun, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't have permission from his father to do this. His father's not dead yet. So this tells us a lot about the thinking of Adonijah. There appears to be no respect for King David by his son, Adonijah. He doesn't get his permission. Adonijah has the same character flaw that we saw in Absalom. He's arrogant, he's prideful, and he's ambitious. And that's not a good trifecta. Adonijah had his allies, as we read, and some of them were quite powerful. The names you all know. Joab, who probably was recruited because he could lend military support, or at least a great portion of the military might come along with him. Abiathar, you'll remember him. He's a good guy. He's another significant piece in that he'll bring the priesthood along with him. Presumably, Abiathar would have offered spiritual support to this new regime. But as you saw, there were some that didn't go along. Zadok, the priest, was one that didn't go along. Nathan, the prophet who David deeply respects. You remember, Nathan is the one that confronted David about the sin with Bathsheba. Nathan doesn't go alone. Benaiah, who's a military man, doesn't go alone. And he probably counters the influence Joab would have had with Adonijah. 
And also David's special guard doesn't go along. In other words, we might say the secret service doesn't go along. The secret service stays with David. The Shimei that's mentioned here, you probably recall that name too. This is not the same Shimei that cursed David in the Absalom Revolution. Different Shimei altogether. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we know that he's a different person. And we know nothing of this Rei person, nothing at all. Just that he stayed with David. Apparently he was someone who was prominent. One clue that Adonijah was doing this inappropriately, and he knew he was doing it inappropriately, was he didn't invite those that were closest to David. The fact that Nathan and Benaiah are left off the invite list tells you all that you need to know. He's doing it behind David's back. He doesn't want anybody to know. That's a big stinking red flag that goes up, not just to Nathan, but to the, the rest of the folks there, that if this was above board, there wouldn't have been any secrecy and they wouldn't have been left out of the whole thing. If it was just a simple succession to the throne that David had no problem with, then why not invite Solomon, for example, Adonijah's little brother, why not invite him? I think Adonijah knew he was doing the wrong thing. I think Adonijah had heard whispers that Solomon was the heir that David had picked. And that's why he doesn't invite him. It's hard to say for sure, but I think that's the best of the choices. By the way, I hope you notice that all the men who chose to side with Adonijah here at one time had been extremely loyal to David. That's why I say these are all good men. Of course, we've talked about Joab. Up and down Joab. One, one week he's great, the next week he's anything but that. But these are all men that had been very loyal to David. So it's odd that at this point in time in David's life, when he's at his weakest, this is probably the, the weakest David has been since the Absalom Revolution when he's leaving Jerusalem and going up over the Mount of Olives and everybody's weeping. But now he's weak physically. At least then he wasn't weak physically. And sometimes when we get weak physically, we also can get weak spiritually. So we have to be careful not to allow ourselves to get too weak, too, too weak physically. Although David here, I don't think, had any choice in the matter because he was sick. In verses 11 through 31, Nathan and Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, get together and Nathan plans a counterattack against Adonijah. First, Nathan informs Bathsheba about what's going on. And we've said in a previous study, it looks like toward the end of David's life, he's finally got this situation with his lust for women under control. And it appears as though Bathsheba is the primary, if not the only, wife in his life at that time. They devise a plan. First, Nathan informs Bathsheba of what's going on. And then he devises a plan to have Bathsheba intervene with David on behalf of her son Solomon. She's asked David, in effect, she's to remind David that Solomon is the Lord's choice to succeed him. And it's the Lord's choice, not just David's choice, but it's the Lord's choice. Basically, she's saying, isn't that what you told me, king, a long time ago when we had Solomon? Isn't that what you told me? Why then? Rhetorical question. You could almost see her scratch the back of her head. Why then has Adonijah made himself the king? Even in a weakened state, David wakes up. He knows what the right thing to do is here. And skipping down to verse 17. And she said to him, My Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God. And that's a very serious oath. 
you promised not just me, but you swore by the Lord your God. Now, we don't do that so much anymore. That's not part of our culture. It's part of other cultures, but it's not so much part of ours. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But this is a very serious oath that David had taken with Bathsheba, swearing by God, by the Lord your God. Solomon shall be king after me and shall sit on my throne. This is what David had told her earlier. And now, behold, Adonijah is king. And now, my lord, the king, you did not know it. And he sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, as then invited all his sons of the king, and Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But he's not invited Solomon, your servant. Now, since Solomon's one of the youngest kids, you think, why not invite him? If you're not going to invite one of the sons, it would be probably the next one in line. Because maybe he'd be a, a threat to the throne. Why does he consider Solomon so much a threat? I think because he's probably heard. He's not in the dark about this. He's probably heard about Solomon. And as for you, now my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you. To tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. And if you're considered an offender of the king, you're not going to be around very long. So in other words, if you don't do something about this, King David, both me and our son are going to be executed the minute you die. I think she probably was right to think that. David is wise enough to know that Adonijah almost has to kill Solomon. I'm talking about from a pretty purely human perspective. Otherwise, there are other people in Israel that know that Solomon is supposed to be the king. He's almost got to kill him, and probably Bathsheba too, although that sounds pretty rough. But probably Bathsheba too, because it doesn't sound like Bathsheba is the kind of lady that's going to keep her mouth shut about this and just go along quietly if her son has been killed. Then, as has been planned, this was part of the plan all along, as soon as Bathsheba is finished speaking, then Nathan enters the palace, and he asks to speak to the king. Move down to verse 24. Then Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall be the king after me, and he shall sit on the throne? I'm confused, my lord, King David. Is this what you've decided, that Adonijah is supposed to be the king? For he's gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's son and commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they're eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live. King Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehodiah, and your servant Solomon, he's not invited. Has this thing done by my lord the king? And have you not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne, my lord, of, the, of my lord the king, after him? David had to be at least a little heartbroken when he hears this boast, both from Bathsheba and from Nathan the prophet. He's got to be thinking again. Another one of my sons, the next one in line, wants to assume the kingship and just leave me behind. I mean, what has David got to be thinking? He's still alive. Feeble, yes, but he's still alive. This is a coup. Adonijah is attempting to, to pull off here. But David responds just like he should. Verse 28, then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came and stood in the king's presence, stood before the king. And the king bowed and said, as the Lord lives. Here we go again. This is a serious vow. 
who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely as I vowed to you by the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. I will indeed do this this day. David then has Solomon ride on his mule, a sign that David has ordained this in public, and as Zadok and Nathan anoint Solomon king in Gihon, which again is just right outside of Jerusalem, right next to a, a shout, if you will, from where Adonijah had himself anointed king in, in Rogel. When Solomon is anointed king, and everybody sees that David's in this, the reason they see that David's in it, because Solomon is riding on his mule. This is like giving a seal of, of approval. As soon as Solomon is anointed the king, and people realize that it is David's choice for Solomon to be king, everybody rejoices. Everybody's comfortable with that choice. They couldn't have been that comfortable with Adonijah, although you've got you to realize this is happening bam, bam, back to back. In verses 41 through 43, Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city making such an uproar? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came. Remember, this is another one who was at one time very faithful to David. Then Adonijah said, Come in, for you're a valiant man, and bring good news. But Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. No, Adonijah, it's not good news. It's about as bad a news as you could possibly have heard this particular day. In verses 46 through 48, besides, Solomon even has taken his seat on the, on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord the King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also thus said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today, for my own eyes see it. David sees this as the beginning of the fulfillment of what was promised in Second Samuel chapter 7, in the Davidic covenant. And he's right. And he's humble about it, and he's thankful for it. But when Adonijah's guests hear all the commotion, that is not that far away, that's why I showed you that map earlier, they freak out, as they probably should have, and they left as fast as they, as they had previously come. Adonijah, for his part, knows his goose is probably cooked, to use a more modern term, and he runs to the tabernacle and seeks sanctuary there. In Israel, that was a common way of seeking sanctuary, but it was only supposed to be sanctuary for one who was guilty of an unintentional killing or event, but probably an unintentional killing. Whether Adonijah is qualified to run to the tabernacle, not the temple, remember it wasn't built at this point, whether he's qualified to do that is very debatable. For his intention does appear to be that he would have killed Solomon had he gotten the opportunity and removed him as a potential rival to the throne. It all has to do with not getting invited to that party. 
not getting invited to a party today may be a, a, a social insult, but not getting invited to that party meant that you were on the death list. And so it's probably not valid for him to run to the tabernacle and hold on to the, uh, the, to the horns and speak asylum in, in that way. The way of the world would have been for Solomon to have killed Adonijah. That's what would have happened if we had read a history about just about any other culture. When one son tries to have the one killed, if it doesn't work, then that son's probably dead himself. But that's not what's going to happen in this particular case. Again, verse 50, Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. He arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, If he will be a worthy man, not one of the hairs of his head will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down to the altar, and he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon, and Solomon said, Go to your house. It happens oftentimes, doesn't it, that when we get in difficult situations, that oftentimes we will transfer or project, to use a psychological term, our own weaknesses, our own sinful patterns, our own bad thoughts, onto someone else. And we just assume that everybody's thinking the same thing that, that we might think under that particular circumstance. Adonijah assumes Solomon would have done the thing that he would do, have done if he was in Solomon's position. So he had to be shocked when Solomon comes in and says, no, go on home. Go on to your own house. Now, Adonijah is going to get his later. In case you can't be here next week, Ad Adonijah's... <laughs> Adonijah is going to get his later. If you want to read ahead, he's going to get his next week because he's going to make a request that shows that he hasn't quite given up the idea of assuming the kingship for himself. And Solomon is wise. But this is one of the first opportunities that Solomon has to exercise wisdom. Even at this early age, he begins to rule, or more specifically, he begins this co-regency because, remember, his father's still alive. So he hasn't, uh, he hasn't assumed the throne all by himself yet. But for this short period of time, they're going to rule together. And Solomon is, is probably only about 20 years old at this point. Adonijah, on the other hand, is probably mid-40s, maybe 45, 46-ish by this time. But Solomon is still relatively young. Some people picture Solomon as being 5 or 6 or 10 years old. No, no. Remember, it was David's sin with Bathsheba that got this whole thing started. And Solomon is born shortly after that sin. It's been about 20 years since that sin, so that's how you, that's how you calculate that Solomon is about 20 years old, maybe 19, but around 20 years old. So he's very wise for his age. There's no point in killing Adonijah if he doesn't have to. Why begin your reign with terror? Why begin your reign with vengeance? Wouldn't it be so much better to begin your reign with mercy? And that's exactly what happens here. So in this chapter, we see a very weakened David who is, in, in one sense, has dropped the ball. And he's not seeing what Adonijah is doing. Of course, that's not the first time we've seen David not anticipate the sins of one of his children. He was a great leader in many ways, but he was not a great father. But David is 
in this weakened state, he doesn't see what Adonijah is doing. He drops the ball on that. But when it's pointed out to him, even though he is sick and he's in bed and has a circulation problem most likely and is very near death, he at least is wise enough to know the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is exactly what God had wanted him to do in the first place. There's not a whole lot of thought that has to take place here. All David has to do is just remember what it is he is supposed to do. It's interesting when, the, in the, when David's charge to Solomon comes up, he's going to tell Solomon that very thing. As David's going out and Solomon's coming in, he's, he's going to tell him, listen, you do the right thing. You do what the Mosaic Law tells you to do, and you're going to be okay. It's great advice for any parent to a child as that parent is in the process of, of being promoted on to heaven. That's the best advice you can give. Get with the Lord, stay with the Lord, follow the Lord, obey the Lord, demonstrate that you love him by doing that. And that's exactly what David does at the end of his life. He remembers the covenant, and he knows that Adonai is not supposed to be the king. And even though it's one son against another, and that's a difficult position for fathers to be placed in sometimes, he knows he's got to do the right thing before the Lord. If he does the right thing before the Lord, it'll all work out. So David, at the end of his life, is weak, but he still maintains his love for Yahweh. Solomon begins his reign by showing mercy. 